As we get started, if you have your Bibles, you could turn to the book of Romans. We'll be in Romans chapter 3. If you do not have a Bible this morning, uh, just so that you know that I'm not saying anything that I've made up, you can just raise your hand and in the back, Ben and someone else can help get you a Bible. If you, if you don't have a Bible, you need to borrow a Bible, just raise your hand in the air, keep your hand in the air, and we'll get a Bible to you. Uh, we are in Romans chapter 3 is where we'll be as we continue to work through this letter that though it is 2,000 years old, it is God's Word, and God's Word still speaks to us today. So Romans chapter 3 is where we'll be. I'll just say, even though I agree, I, I like it better when we're angled seating, I do think it sounds louder when we're sitting like this, so at least for those of us in the middle. So it's good to hear all of you, all of you singing. Can someone be rescued if they don't know they need to be rescued? Can someone be rescued if they don't know that they need to be rescued? Of course, we've heard stories or seen old black and white movies of trains diverted with unknowing passengers, not realizing the danger that was ahead of them, or of bystanders being warned. But often those who are rescued are those who recognize they need to be rescued. The drowning man signals for the lifeguard. Uh, The woman picks up her phone and dials 911 to get a hold of the fire department. Uh, The slipping child calls for his parents to help. It's difficult to be rescued if you don't know. The book of Romans is about salvation. It's about the gospel. We've read in Romans 1, 16, 17 that it's the good news, uh, the gospel of how God saves. It's, it's God's mercy, his salvation to all who believe. And what is true for the gospel message, what is true for the message of salvation is this, that in order to be saved, you need to recognize that you're lost. In order to be saved, you need to recognize that you are helplessly and hopelessly lost. And that is exactly what Paul has been arguing. That's the point he's been trying to make. We are in chapter 3 now, and what Paul has been trying to do, if you were to divide Romans into four or five chunks, we'll call them, the first main section is he's trying to demonstrate that all people are hopelessly lost, sinners under the wrath of God of God. It goes through everybody. That's what he's trying to do from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, which is where we will land today. Take a look, if you would, for a moment. Take a look at chapter 118, just by way of reminder, so you could see the big sections. So 118 talks about the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, that God's wrath is coming. And God's wrath is coming against people who reject him. Uh, Particularly in chapter 1, it has this theme of idolatry. Take a look at verse 21. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images." resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That is what all of mankind has done, what all of the uh, non-religious world has done, has exchanged the glory of God and worshiped something else instead of him. They've rejected him. Instead of seeing his glory and worshiping him, they've turned from him. And what Paul says in Romans 1, 18 to 32, is those people are under condemnation. Their judgment, totally fair. But what he started doing in chapter 2, which we looked at last week, is saying, The Jew is also under condemnation. Now, the Jews are the people who God, they were the chosen people of God to whom he first revealed himself. And so what you had is totally pagan people, chapter one, under judgment. Chapter two, super religious people under judgment, under the wrath of God. And the Jews would have thought, as Paul is arguing, the Jews would have thought, wait a second, we are God's chosen people. We were rescued out of Egypt. We have all this history and heritage. Why are we being judged? Paul argues chapter 2, verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. 
In verse 11, for God shows no partiality. That is, God doesn't care about your heritage. He doesn't care whether or not your parents were believers. He doesn't care whether or not your grandparents were like stud believers or if they're missionaries. He doesn't care about your knowledge. He doesn't care about how many Christmases you spent at church. What does he care about? He cares about whether or not you are righteous, whether or not you are a sinner. And what Paul shows is despite the Jews having all this knowledge, they were just as sinful as the world around them. Chapter 2, verse 23 says, You who boast in the law, you who boast in that you know the law of God, you know the word of God, you boast in it, you who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. So whether or not you just don't know the commands of God like the pagan world and rebel against him, or you know the law of God and still disobey him, what Paul is arguing is that both are lost. Both are under judgment. And today Paul makes his final case. It's his final proof, his closing arguments that demonstrate that all men in their own standing before God, all people are condemned. All are under judgment. Here's where Paul's argument is going to go. We're going to work our way through the chapter, but look at verse, let's go to chapter three now. Look at verses 19 and 20. Here's where he's going to land. Here's his, uh, his thesis, if you had to write a persuasive essay. This is, this is the main point he's trying to make. Here it is. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul's point, no matter how good you think you might be, you in your own good deeds stand condemned, guilty. It's the argument we're going to look at today. I want you to think about this passage today in terms of a court case, in terms of a trial. Maybe some of you have actually been to a court before. You've seen like a judge and a jury. Most of us have only seen this in TV shows or movies or on the news. I don't know why that sometimes they record court cases and other times they someone can only like paint it in oil pastel and like here's what happened. But anyway, we, we have this idea of judge, jury, defendant, and that's how I want you to think about this passage today. That Paul, like any good lawyer, makes his final point and he makes it strong. And this morning you need to hear the need for the gospel. That's, that's Paul's aim here. At the end, he's, he wants you to leave saying, I need the gospel. That outside of the message of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for sinners, I cannot be saved. And that hearing that, I want you to do one of two things today. I either want you to rejoice or I want you to repent. Rejoice, remembering what Christ has done for you, that your security is in him, or repent in turning to Christ as you see your hopelessness before a holy God. Let's look at this in three scenes, as it were, of this court case. Number one, we'll call it the final defense. The final defense. This will be verses 1 through 8. Verses 1 through 8, the final defense. In any court case, uh, you have uh, witnesses speak, you have lawyers speak, uh, but finally the defense gets one last chance to plead their case. Uh, They get to say why they're innocent. They get to say why they shouldn't be judged. And what Paul has been doing here, he's not addressing an actual argument, but he's been advancing his point through a hypothetical debate. He imagines a, a Jewish person who would say, well, because I'm a good person, I have the law of God, I'd be saved. And he kind of argues with them. And what he does here in this hypothetical debate is he provides what their final defense would be, right? So this is like verses one through eight, the final defense for the person that says, no, no, I can be good enough on my own. I can be righteous enough to get into heaven. I can do enough good things, uh, know enough truth, uh, do enough work in the community that God would accept me. And as as Paul has been undermining that, he provides these sort of three excuses. There there are three excuses that come out of the text for the person that is trying to say, no, I shouldn't be judged. So he's doing here. He's providing three hypothetical people who go, well, no, God can't judge me because of 
A, B, and C. And here's what they are. Here's their first excuse. It's in verse 1. It says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? The first excuse would be, well, wait a second, Paul. God can't judge the Jews because the Jews are a special people. And uh, if you were with us when we taught through Exodus, you know that the Jews were God's elect people, that they were the ones that he rescued, that he, according to Exodus 19, saved them and said, you will be my special people in all the world, right? And so they say, well, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Paul, we can't be condemned because remember, the Jews are a special people. That's their first excuse that they provide. We can't be judged. Well, what does Paul say? How does, he, how does he answer this? Well, he says, well, what advantage do they have? Verse 2, much in every way. He says, absolutely. The, the Jews had an advantage. And he says, first of all, and you think, or to begin with, you, you think he's going to give this list. You think he's going to say, let me tell you all these advantages that you had as those uh, who were God's elect, special people. But then he only gives one thing. And it turns out it's, it's enough to prove that they had an extreme advantage over the rest of the world. Here it is. He says, of, of, of course they did. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, what does that mean? Oracles sounds like a really fancy word. Oracles, or you're thinking about Oracle Arena, or Oracle Park, where the Dodgers beat the Giants last night. There you go. That, that, I found a way to work that in somewhere. Um, but, but Oracle, it's not a word we use. If you were to look at the Greek, it's actually just the word for words. It, it's, they were entrusted with the words of God. Now think about it. They're saying, wait, we didn't have any advantage. And Paul says, no, no, you did. You had the very words of God. You guys remember when Ben taught a few weeks ago? He taught in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. And he said that, that the, the unsaved world, the world that doesn't know God, should have obeyed him. Why? Just based on creation. They had what people call general revelation. You look at the stars, right? You go to a nice sunset. And you should think not, man, I wish there was a girl with me. You should think, man, there's a God who made this and I ought to worship him. Right? That, that's, that's all the... The, uh, the irreligious world has is just creation screaming to them. And yet Paul says that's enough to condemn them. But you Jews, you had something else. You had the word of God. And so you had an advantage. You can't say that God cheated you somehow or he deceived you somehow because you had some advantage. Just like many of you in here will not be able to blame other circumstances. You've had the word of God. First excuse as they say, well, then us Jews didn't have any benefit. God, God hoodwinked us, and that's not true. Here's their second excuse. Here's their second reason why they can't be judged. They're going to accuse God of being unfaithful. They're going to accuse God of being unfaithful. Listen to their argument. Here's what Paul says. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify or cancel, undo the faithfulness of God? Here's the issue. The issue is, didn't God promise to rescue us? Didn't God promise to save uh, the Jews, the people of Israel? Didn't he promise to be their special people? Well, if some of them were unfaithful, doesn't that make God unfaithful? That's the imaginary argument here. God can't condemn us because if he does, he's unfaithful. He promised that he's rescued. He's obligated to rescue us. That's, That's who he is. What's Paul say? He says, verse 4, by no means. And this is strong in the Greek. This is is no way. That is not true. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Right? God cannot be untrue. Uh, God, God cannot be unfaithful. He's always faithful to what he said. And we actually know he has rescued many people. But if some fall away, that doesn't make him unfaithful. And to make his point, he actually quotes from Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Does anyone know the context of Psalm 51? It's, it's a very popular psalm. I bet many of you have read it for quite a time before. Who, who wrote Psalm 51? Anyone? Call it out. Yeah. David. And does anyone know when he did it? Right after his sin with Bathsheba. Okay, so let's think about it. Psalm 51. David, 2 Samuel 7, promised 
that he will have a king on the throne forever. Promise that his line is the line through which Messiah will come, which, uh, which Mike mentioned this morning. Okay, so, so that's David's promise. And then David sins. 2 Samuel 11 and 12. He sins with Bathsheba. Now, what does David do? Does David go, God, I might have been unfaithful, but if you deny me, then you're unfaithful too. Is that what David does? No, he says, take a look at verse 4 there. He says that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. God, I am guilty. You are the innocent one, and we want you to be proven as the innocent one. And so what Paul is arguing there is, no, no, God is still good, and God is still God, even if those who had his word end up rejecting him, falling away. He is in no way unfaithful. Which then leads to this third argument. So let's look at verses 5 to 8. We'll, we'll, we'll finish this excuse. This is, so first excuse, well, God, you know, he lied to us about the benefit of being a Jew. Second excuse will be, well, wouldn't God be unfaithful if he judged these religious people? Here's the third excuse. The third excuse, to understand it, you need to look at verse 5b, the, the second half of verse 5. So he says there at the very end, if you look at the very end of the verse, in parentheses, you'll see, I speak in a human way. Okay, so, so here's what I want you to say before we look at these verses. What Paul is, is doing is he's saying right in the middle there, hey, the way I'm talking, the way I'm arguing is the way that like a natural man would think, an unenlightened man. This is dumb thinking. This is a, a foolish argument. So Paul's saying right in the middle, so I want to let you know that this argument has no basis whatsoever. So like, okay, well, what is this argument? But here it is. Here's this excuse. The excuse is, why would God judge me if sin seems to be doing something good? Why would God judge me if sin seems to be doing something good? Take a look at verse 5. It says, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? What they're saying is, hey, if by our sin we show that God is good in judging sin, then why would God judge us? Right? You, you get the argument. Why? We're, we're, we're showing off how good he is. Paul shuts that down. He says, no, that's foolish thinking by no means because we know that God is going to judge the world for their sin. Then why wouldn't he judge the Jew for their sin? That's what he argues in verse 6. But then look again at verse 7. This is the false thinking. But if through my lie... God's truth abounds to his glory. Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Okay, here, here, that's the thought. If I sin and God gets glory for he's just and I'm a failure, he shows that he's good by showing how bad I am, then why am I being judged? In fact, why not, verse 8, do evil that good may come? I mean, Paul, based on what you're saying, why shouldn't we just all sin all the more? And that way God looks better and better because we see how bad we are. That's the excuse that some have come up with. That's, that's the excuse that even today people said, well, if God's glorified in sin, why not just enjoy it? If, if our sins are many, his mercy is more, then don't we make his mercy better if I sin all the more? Now, how does Paul undo this excuse? It's really interesting. The other ones, he, he reasons with it. But for this one, look what he does. The end there, verse 8, all he says is this. Their condemnation is just. He doesn't even go back and forth with that argument. He said, if your thinking is so wicked that you've come to this idea that like, well, if I just sin more and more, God will forgive me. I don't need to even address it. Your condemnation is just. You are thinking like a wicked, natural man who's just trying to get out of their condemnation. What do I want you to see with all three of these? We see three excuses, and none of them work. Three ways that, that people try to use words to get out of the condemnation that's coming. And none of them prevail. None of these arguments hold any water. 
What's the lesson for us in here? The lesson is this. None of our excuses, none of our logic, none of our reasoning, none of our twisting of words can help us get out of the wrath that should be rightfully ours. None of it will. Some of you have tried to witness to people, you've tried to share the gospel with people who've come up with reason after reason why God shouldn't judge them or why they shouldn't have to obey. And none of their arguments ultimately stick. And some of you in here, if we were to go around and say, are you a Christian? You were to say, no. Say, why not? You would give argument after argument. Reason after reason, why not? Or reason after reason, why you think that, that you will be saved, even if you're not like the other kids that are really serious around you. And what I want you to see is none of our excuses ultimately work. This final defense falls flat. I mean, think about some of the things we've heard. People who've, who've said, well, God will not judge me because he would be unloving to judge me. And isn't he a God of love? It will not work. Well, God, I would have followed you, but so many other Christians have hurt me. So how can I follow you when your people have hurt me? It's true that people believe that. It is sad that that happens. But ultimately, the excuse doesn't work. The trial does not get delayed. Or people will say, well, I've only sinned because of others. There's others around me, the culture around me, my upbringing is why I fall so short, or, or this bent I have. Friend, again, none of these excuses work. Even, I know in this room, there are some that give spiritual reasons why they don't need to follow the Lord. Particularly in a well-taught church like ours, well, Josh, I don't love Jesus yet because God hasn't done that in my heart, or he hasn't called me yet, or I'm, not, I'm just not chosen. And you know that that's not true. John 6, Jesus says, all who come to me, I will certainly not cast out. What are those really? Those don't sound pious and religious. They're excuses. They're means by which you're trying to trick God into thinking that he can't judge you. And ultimately, every excuse falls short. Every hypothetical reason why you shouldn't pay the penalty for your sin ultimately falls flat and your judgment remains. No excuse will stand. So we see here in this final defense. Let's move to our second point. Let's, let's move to point two, what we'll call this scene, the verdict. We'll call it then the verdict. All the reasons why... Uh, a non-religious person and a religious person should be condemned have already been brought forth. And all the excuses, maybe to get them out of condemnation, have already been brought forth, particularly for the religious person. And none of them have worked. So now it's time to think about, okay, all the evidence is brought forth. We've worked through it. Let's reach a verdict here. Let's read a sentence. And some of you have seen this, again, either in like TV dramas or movies, or you've watched it. You've seen the weightiness of court cases when the judge or a juror finally reads the sentence. Well, that's what Paul is doing here. Paul under the inspiration of the Spirit, speaking the very word of God, reads the verdict for sinners. And he begins in verse 9. It says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? That's the question. Okay, they have the word of God, which is good. And by the way, last week, I want to clarify something. You guys are blessed that you've been to a church, and it's good that, that uh, you hear the word, and that you've memorized verses. But the question is, will those things wipe away my sin? Will it cancel my debt? Will it make me righteous? And the answer is no. No. Those things have no advantage. Let me say that again to this room where many of you I know have grown up in church. Those things, those religious deeds, religious ceremonies, religious heritage have no advantage. They are not evil on their own, but they give you no basis for salvation. You, you cannot use them for any sort of spiritual currency with God. It, it gives you no credit before him. And that's what he's, Paul argues. There's no advantage, none at all for those who are religious, this being the Jews. None. You cannot make yourself righteous. 
Why not? Why doesn't it work? Why? Well, Paul has already demonstrated that everyone has sinned. But here he demonstrates something more. He goes a step further. It's not just that everybody has sinned. Take a look again at verse 9. Not at all, right? There's no advantage uh, any more than there's, you know, when the principal brings two disobedient kids in the office, there's no advantage for the kid who has better school supplies, right? That doesn't help him at all in that situation. It doesn't help you if you've got more religiosity. Why not? Not just that you have sinned, but verse nine, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, religious people, non-religious people are under sin, all of them, we've already charged it. Chapter one, Greeks. Chapter two, Jews. We've already proven that they are under sin. So let's think about that for a moment. He says under sin. What does he mean by under? You could say that well, they're under judgment. That is someone's like in the category of facing the wrath of God. But under sin means something a, a little more. Because what you find, especially if we look in Romans, is sin is more than just a disobedient act. We talk about, you know, sin is missing the mark. Have you ever seen a darts game? We throw it and you miss. There you go. Sin, you've missed the mark. And it's true. You've fallen short of the glory of God. You've, you've not walked in his commandments. Sin is missing the mark. But what you find in Romans is sin is more than that. Sin is a power. Romans 5 says, what's verse 21, that sin reigned. Okay, standards don't just reign. They have a force, sin has more of a force behind it, a power behind it. In Romans 6, it will say that you were slaves of sin and that the believer was freed from sin. So sin is this reality that has dominion. It has dominion in the life of others. It's this force that controls and reigns over. Let's, let's think about this. What, what does this look like here? Because what Paul is claiming is it's not just that you do sin, it's that you're enslaved to sin, that sin rules over you. Nathan, come here. I need your help. Illustration time. Let's go. I've used this before, but I think it's important. Nathan, you'll have to bear with me. Come, I, I do this better with, with Chloe because she's four and tiny, uh, but that's okay. So, so what sin does is sin has dominion, we'll say, over Nathan. So if Nathan tries to go to his left, walk to your left, Nathan, he can't go there unless it's sin that tells him to. And other times he might decide he wants to go to his right, but then sin decides it is time for him to go to his left. And Nathan decides to go sit back in his chair. Uh, go ahead, Nathan, seriously, no, go for it. But he can't because, no, so help me out here. I'm not that strong. Okay, there we go. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just kidding. Right? Dominion. And then he wants to stay on stage, but the sin kind of throws him off that way. There you go, Nathan. You can, you can sit down now. Thank you, Nathan. That's a cheesy illustration, but that's the idea. Is it's not just a part of your life. It's not just you decide like, well, I'm in control. I decide when I sin or I know. No, no. Sin for the unbeliever owns you. So you're not just occasionally walking into rebellion against God, you're owned by rebellion against God. It has a claim on your life. That's Paul's argument. He's saying you are under sin, which is why you cannot be right by your own deeds because you're just enslaved to disobedience. And for proof of that, Paul goes to the Old Testament. You see this little paragraph in there, everything's indented. What uh, what? Paul is doing is he's quoting all throughout the Old Testament his proof that this is the state of man. Man is under sin, not just that all man does sin. Man continuously sin and is owned by sin. So he quotes from, I'll give you the verses here. He quotes from Psalm 14, Psalm 5, Psalm 140, Psalm 10, quotes from Proverbs 116, Isaiah 59, and again from Psalm 36. Many of your Bibles have those footnotes at the bottom as well. He, he's quoting through all the Old Testament to say, it's not in one random spot. It's everywhere that screams out, sin owns you if you're not in Christ. Sin owns the unbeliever. Let's, let's look at his argument here. Verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous. 
No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. They have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. There is no person who is good in the sight of God. How could a loving God punish good people? Answer, there are no good people. All have turned aside from him. All have rejected him. There is no one who's better than the other. There's not one example in history where you go, well, that guy's a pretty good guy. Well, I mean, she was pretty nice. My friends, they've all turned aside from God. I think it's such an interesting uh, reality. It should change the way we view people. It should especially help us to avoid the sort of favoritism that is so common with uh, those that have preferences we like. What Paul is saying is there's, there's no one who's good. No, not one. And he goes to show that this dominion of sin not only makes it that no one categorically is good, but that sin has infected every part of your life. And where does he begin he begins with the mouth. Isn't that interesting? You want to show how evil people are. You want to show how evil people are, especially if you're trying to convince uh, like religious people that know you are inherently evil. So what, do you, what would you do? Well, maybe you should start with, well, let's really look at the, their sexual sin to see how bad they are. Let's look at the really big crimes that they've done. And Paul says, you want to know how evil people are? All we have to do is first look at the mouth. And look at the way that people talk. And look at the way that people communicate with one another. Verse 13, what do we know about their mouth? Their throat is an open grave. And they use their tongues to deceive. All that comes out of their mouth is death. Jesus was right and when he said, from out of the mouth, the heart speaks. You want to know how wicked someone's heart is. All you have to see is the words of their mouth. The way they speak to one another. It says the venom of asps, that sort of snake, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. It's full of cursing and bitterness. And friends, isn't this the way we see the world work. Isn't this the way we see relationships in the world? Though the world puts on this facade and they're nice, what do you find is that man constantly using their mouth to kill and to slander and to tear down and to murder with their words. That we always have unkind things to say. And we're lucky enough in the last 20 years to realize that because we have things like Twitter and Instagram as evidence before us all the time. That these mouths that God gave us to bless one another, we constantly use to curse one another. I mean, isn't that amazing that we would use our lips to slander those created in the image of God as if we were better than them and as if we could judge them. By the way, what a way this speaks to sins of the mouth. Isn't it so like us to minimize sins of the mouth? To think, well, the really bad sins are the sexual sins we see in the world, uh, murders, adultery, etc. No, no, Paul begins with the mouth. And friend, I would just ask you this morning, are you one who has minimized the sin of the mouth? Are you the one that you are, as long as you're not murdering people, as long as you're not committing adultery, you are comfortable with all sorts of gossip, all sorts of what we'll just call hatred via text message, all sorts of using your social media for the purpose of tearing others down so you could build yourself up, all sorts of spiritual accountability where you just ultimately just want to share about how other people are messing up. Hey, let me warn you about them so that you know that I'm good. Let me, soar dis let me sow discord on discord. Uh, let me find ways to just rip others. So, you know, I would just ask you, based on this, if you're someone who's constantly gossiping, constantly criticizing, constantly tearing others down, are you under sin? Friend, do we think that because our lips sing three songs and a fourth after the sermon, that we're totally good to talk about and text about and post about 
anybody we want. What does that say about our sins of the mouth? Paul goes further than that. He talks about their relationships for those who are under sin. He says their feet are swift to shed blood. And in their paths are ruin and misery. I mean, we mock cancel culture, but how often are you ready to destroy someone, whether their reputation or actually physically brawling? We are always looking for ways to destroy others. Homies, I need you right over here. Thanks, guys. Lock in. Perfect. Uh, How quick are we just like eager and loving to say like, man, who can I tear down? Who can I attack? Who who can I use for my purposes? Says the way of peace they have not known. And that's not like tranquility, inner peace. That's relational peace. Uh, That that just kind of following them around all the time is drama and uh, lack of reconciliation. You see this on your campuses. Perhaps you see this in your own friendships. That following you everywhere is turmoil and distrust, hypocrisy and slander. Why is that? Perhaps it's because you're under sin. But here's the kicker, verse 18. It says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. What does it mean to be under sin? Well, it's going to look like no one's good. It's going to look like your mouth. It's going to look like the way you interact with others. But it says, no fear of God is before their eyes. Notice the God-centeredness of sin. That we think of sin often as a social problem. And sin is really messing up my relationships. But here Paul sees sin as a theological problem. That is in verse 11, no one seeks for God. Verse 18, no fear of God before their eyes. Now, what does that mean to fear God? To fear God is to revere God, to hold him in honor, to to feel the weightiness of God, to think of God as most important uh, as he um, permeates everything in your life. To have a high view of him would be to fear him. One author, as I was studying this week, said, fearing God is the essence of a godly person. So again, fearing God is the essence of a, a godly person will fear God. You cannot be godly without fearing him. But for the person under sin, God is something you laugh at. God, God is something you mock. He's trivial. You kind of put him in his compartment Well, you're there on Sunday, you're there on Wednesday, or when my family's praying for dinner, God. But God's not big. God has no like wow factor in my life. Everything's here, nothing's here. I'm never in awe of God. Even now, thinking of, if I could have, if I, my buddy were here thinking of jokes I would tell next to him, about how stupid it is that this tall guy is preaching about this, the the foolishness of this, the mockery of this, uh, the mocking of other people who seem to be genuinely broken over their sin. There's no fear of God. There's no weightiness. He's just a thing that's there either to ignore or to actually mock. But you never hold him in high regard. That's the person who's under sin. And as you look at those things right there, you see clearly, obviously, those who walk in that way, those whose life is is characterized by that. (laughs) That's the verdict. They are rebels before God and rightfully categorized as such. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you've claimed that you're not a Christian. You're very clear about that. And if that's the case, I just want to let you know, like, we're we're not angry at you. We're really glad you're here. But, but I want you to be a little more realistic about sin. Sin is not just some religious, mythical tale that exists. The, the, the Christian boogeyman that's out to get you. Sin is something that owns you. And before you think, uh, you know, I don't let God master me, that might be true. But if you were to look at this list again, would you just be honest and realize that sin masters you? That you're actually not the one pulling the strings in your life, but you're being pulled along? That you actually couldn't stop doing the things that this list prohibits if you tried? 
Because sin owns you, friend. You do not have the freedom you think. You might think when I graduate, I finally don't have to come to church and I'll have the freedom that my parents and relatives have never granted me. Friend, you will not have that freedom. Sin will be a, sin will be a cruel taskmaster till the day you die. If I might ask another question is this. Are you still a slave to sin? You cannot be freed from sin and simultaneously under sin. Why would you send yourself back to enslavement? And yet some of you, if you're honest, would realize, and sin owns me. It gives us reason at the same time to praise God in this text, right? Because if you're, this is, if you're a Christian, this is who you used to be, right? You, you still sin. Some of these things are still in your life, but they don't own your life. Oh, that is God's grace of what he saved us from should make us thankful. But what makes it very clear from this passage is this. You can't be saved by your good deeds. Because of sin's ownership in your life, you cannot possibly think, I'm good enough to get to heaven. That prayer at camp saved me. Those good things I've done, those verses I've memorized, they will not be the reason why God accepts you. Why? Because you're under sin. Let's move to our final scene, number three. Number three, and we'll call this one the silence. We'll call it the silence. Paul finishes his argument in verses 19 and 20. He again, as we read earlier, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, which would have been the religious Jews. I think it also could be speaking to the, uh, the Gentiles who the law was written on their hearts, according to chapter 2. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Okay, Paul's argument here is this, no one justified. No one justified. We know that there is a difference between innocent and not guilty, right? There's a difference between innocent, everything that is totally right, and not guilty, well, we couldn't accuse them of this. And what that word justified means is to be declared right. I know it should be sounding alarms in you. There we go. Justified means you're declared right. That God would look at you and say, yes, I approve of you. Yes, everything you've done is right. Yes, you are acceptable to me. That's what justified means. That's what we want, right? All of us know we're going to die and stand before God. And we want him to say, yes, accepted. Yes, accepted. Yes, accepted. And what Paul is saying is you will not get that through keeping the commandments of God. Your acceptance will not come through your life, through meriting it, through earning it. Why? Because what has the law done? Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And through the commands of God, you actually see, man, I fall so far short. And I hope that's the way you read the Bible. I hope you look at the commands of God as a good thing. Remember, we actually looked at the law when we looked at Exodus. And we knew that they were saved before they got the law. It wasn't keep this and get saved. It was you were saved, now obey. But we would look at that. We should look at that and think, man, if I were to have to keep that perfectly to get saved, I would fall short. I would like be trying to shoot a medicine ball from half court. Like I would just not even get close to it because of my sin that's in my life. So what's the result of that? Look at verse 19. He says, the result is that the whole world may be held accountable to God. The word accountable could be translated a little better. It would be the whole world is under judgment. The whole world, because of their sin, because of the way they've walked in sin, delighted in sin, smiled while they sinned, the whole world is under the judgment of God. Now, some of you think this is the part where I'm going to transition and tell you Jesus makes everything okay. And we will talk about Jesus. But, but Jesus can't save you unless you actually come to Jesus. And friend, this judgment is coming. 
for those that are outside of Christ, for those that will be judged based on the merit of their own life, there will not be a mistrial. Uh, There will not be found evidence uh, that was uh, gathered in an inappropriate way. No, you will stand before the judge and you will stand based on your life. Revelation talks about the books will be opened and people will be judged according to their deeds. In Christian, at that time, it doesn't matter how nice you dress or how loud you sing or how often you attend, at that time, none of your religiosity will get you in. And what will you be? Well, how should you stand according to the sentence? Here it is. It says that their mouths will be shut so that every mouth may be stopped, silenced. I was looking this week at a, at a famous court case that happened in the last few years. And I watched the reading of the sentence from the judge, the reading of the verdict. Some of you have watched this before. There's a, there's a heaviness in that moment because there's been all sorts of lawyers and all sorts of arguing and all sorts of discussion in the media and, and all sorts of debate back and forth. But finally, it comes down to this. And the judge reads those words. Guilty. And in this trial that I watched, the man who was on trial stood there and there's this moment as the sentence is read that his shoulders just sink because it's so final and there's nothing else to be done. And what his mouth does is it stops. There are so many I know, even in this room, and so many that you know outside of this room, who always have an explanation. I sinned because of this. I didn't know that. I wouldn't have if this. And in that moment, when you understand the wrath of God, and you understand your guilt, what's going to happen? Your mouth is going to stop. You will no longer argue, well, my parents were, well, I went to, well, one time I, but as you stand before God to be judged on the basis of your life and your life alone, you will be silent with a palpable silence. Friends, that's the only way you can be saved. Has your mouth ever stopped? Is there always an excuse for sin? Always why a reason why your intentions were right, even though your actions were wrong? Always a reason why it wasn't your fault? then you don't get what Paul's talking about. And you don't quite understand the holiness of the God that you sing so much about and have memorized so many verses about. But the only way that you could be made right with God is if finally after seeing your sin, your mouth stops. I remember being in your shoes when I was in eighth grade. Uh, I thought I was a Christian because I knew the Mormons were wrong. I cussed less than the other kids. I confessed sin that my parents didn't even know that it happened. I was the one that brought it to them and gave it to them in a kind of clean way, but said I was sorry. I graciously went to my fourth grade teacher and said, hey, you talked about evolution. You know, Genesis 1 says something different. Uh, I, I had all sorts of reasons why I was saved. And then... Someone brought me to a camp at summer camp uh, 2002 and I heard the gospel and I began to look at my life over the course of a semester. And finally, my mouth stopped. That finally at a winter camp, January 4th, 2003, uh, some small group leader asked me, why do you think you'll get into heaven? And... I gave some excuse, but I knew 
I had no reason. And you have no reason. And you have no words that you could use to defend yourself. Except one. And it's Jesus. It's Jesus Christ who we learned about this morning. Who came as a representative for sinners. Who came to get baptized like a sinner so that he would identify with sinners. It's Jesus who we love that he obeyed perfectly as more than our example as our representative. It's Christ who was silent when he was accused. Who could have spoken up of his own righteousness. Who willingly goes to the cross silent as a lamb before its shearers to die on our behalf so that while if we look at our life, it is so obvious there's nothing we could do to avoid the wrath of God. We might receive his life credited to us. We might have his perfect life attributed to us in faith. That what Paul is trying to do, as we'll see next week, is to push us to say, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And to give all ourselves over to Christ, so that we might be forgiven. Student, you have no words you can say. There is no thing you could do for God to say, you lived the right life. But if we've trusted in Christ... He's our only plea, then we can be forgiven and viewed as righteous. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. This is the truth that should still warm our hearts, that we are just as saved by Christ today as we were the day of our salvation. We've not added anything since then, but his perfect life still stands as our only hope. This is the good news we must share. We have to tell people that they are going to perish in their sin unless they turn to Jesus. Student, this is the news you need. Have you turned to Christ? Have you been silenced by your sin? If you are, even this morning, if you recognize the weight of your sin and are done with giving excuses, but ready to confess freely, God, I have sinned against you. I deserve nothing but your wrath. Then all you need is to cry out to Christ. And he is a faithful Savior who will rescue you. The only people who could be rescued are those who know they need to be saved. Come to Christ. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, as we get ready to sing, thank you for your word and the truth of it. God, that we could have a right standing. Lord, we can never look at ourselves and find any comfort that we are saved. We know that all of our good deeds are like filthy rags. And so, Lord, I just pray that that our confidence would be in you. That this week we would leave rejoicing in you and hating our sin and loving you. That we know that we're only saved because of your son. And Lord, I pray here that those who have excuses, who have reasoning, Lord, I pray that you would help them by your spirit to see their sin, to be silenced, and to only utter that one precious word, Christ, as their only hope for salvation. We praise you for the righteousness that's in your son. Amen.